Okay, you ready? Let's take a look at uh, the actual letter itself now, okay? And what we have here in Romans, since it is a treatise, as I said, right? Designed for a purpose, not a response to this problem and that problem and this problem and that problem, like all of his other letters were. We have a very well-constructed letter. The whole thing is very, very well-constructed, very crystallized. It's a letter in three parts, all right? The first part is doctrinal, right? Paul's talking about justification by faith in his first eight chapters. And three things specifically about that justification. Number, Number one, why do we need it? Number two, what is justification? And number three, what are justification's effects on us? Right? That's the first part of the letter, eight chapters. Right? Second part of the letter, Paul's talking about the, the, the Jews. Now, they've been embattled. They've been put down. Remember? They, they came back. They were in the minority. Paul is coming to the defense of the Jews here. He feels like he needs to, to, to defend them. And he talks about God's faithfulness to Israel all throughout. And the last part of the letter, the final chapters, a practical application. Okay? Which, by the way, is magnificent spiritual reading. If you're ever looking for something just to read just for the heck of it, you just want something to think about, you just want something to meditate on, the end of that thing, the practical application, it's, it's full of fantastic uh, uh, spiritual writing. Spiritual reading, okay? And so, um, what Paul basically says, he goes, first I'm going to address the Gentile concerns, then I'm going to address the Jewish concerns, and I'm going to make sure nobody misunderstands, and I'm going to show you how to put it into practice. That's Romans, okay? So, let's take a look at this, all right? Um, after a very lengthy, warm, friendly, gracious introduction, okay, Paul gets down to business. And he begins by saying, look, everybody needs justification. right? Jew, Gentile, uh, everybody's turned against him. Nobody has a right to boast. All right? uh, why do we need justification? Well, first up, let's talk about why the Gentiles need justification. All right? So I read from chapter 1, verses 22 to 31. Claiming to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling, resembling mortal man or birds or animals or reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Blessed be he forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural. The men likewise gave up natural relations for women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to the base mind and improper conduct. And they were filled with all manner of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit. They're gossipers, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who do such things deserve to die, not only do they do them, but they approve of those who practice them. Both barrels, right? Doesn't it sound just like today? Holy smokes! That could be from that could be a that could be somebody's homily from last weekend, all right? And just goes to show you that um, hey, human nature never changes, and sin's grip on the human heart it never changes, and it was just as true back then as it was now. But let's not forget what's going on there, okay? Paul's not just nailing people for no reason. He's basically saying, hey, Gentiles, you got no reason to brag. You're in need of God's justification, all right? 
Um, and, the ne- and just in case the Jews now, they think they're all haughty and hoity-toity, he, he nails them next. And I read from chapter 2, okay, verses 17 to uh, 34. Uh, 34, I, I meant to write 24. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely upon the law and boast of your relation to God and know that His will and approve of and know His will and approve of what's excellent because you're instructed in the law, and if you're sure that you're a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, will you not teach yourself? Why do you preach against stealing and steal? Why do you do you why, do you say that? One must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You abhor idols. Do you rob temples? You boast in the law. You dishonor God by breaking the law. It's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Okay, so Jews, you need help too. Right? Everybody's guilty before God. Jew and Gentile, no matter whether you have the law or don't have the law, everybody's in the soup. Right? We're all in trouble. And he makes this famous passage, he kind of drives it home real quickly here, chapter 3, verses 9 to 12. Uh, Who then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. I've already charged that all men, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin, as it is written. No one is righteous, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they've gone wrong. No one has done good, not even one. So the very first thing he wants to say here is... uh, Gentiles are unfaithful, Jews are unfaithful, um, but this all might not be condemned. God sent Christ and we're justified in faith through Him. Okay, so there's your part A of number one there. Why do we need justification? Because sin has messed us all up, right? So number two, what is justification? Okay, um, well, you heard it last week, right? Same thing that he said to the Galatians. Uh, he said, you know, justification is, is by faith, and this is the way it was from the very beginning. Uh, God's faith to Abraham. We'll just set up this idea with a real quick line here from 3, 21 to 24. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction, since all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, just like I got finished saying, they're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Okay. And then what Paul does next, he talks about, basically takes the entire chapter 4 of Romans, and he talks about Abraham again. And Abraham, remember, that's his foundation for justification. Okay? Just like I talked about last week. Was Abraham a friend of God? Yes or no? Yes. Did Abraham have the Jewish law? No. It hadn't happened yet. It hadn't happened yet. All right? Abraham didn't have the Jewish law. So what was God's plan from the beginning? Justification by faith or justification by the law? By faith. All right? So here's God's plan from the beginning. Age-old Abraham. He believed. He journeyed. He offered his son. And he was a friend of God. All right? So he basically talks all about chapter 4. Uh, in chapter 5, all right, talks all about Abraham in chapter 4, basically saying that same message that I said last week. In chapter 5, he, he throws out this, this little interlude about Christ... And he says that Christ is the new Adam. Who's heard that before? Who's never heard that before? You guys don't like raising hands, do you? Okay, okay I'm trusting that a lot of you don't know that. So, I'm, so, so, so I'll go through this tiny little interlude here. Uh, he said that uh, everybody had sinned through Adam. Right? Remember hearing that in uh, Sunday school or first grade, second grade? 
Okay, who ever heard that way back in kindergarten or first grade? Heard, well, long ago there was somebody named Adam and he ate this apple and you know that's why you all have to go to school. Long ago there was somebody who named Adam and you know, he ate this apple and that's why people get sick and die. Okay, you heard that and you thought to yourself, boy, that's the weakest explanation I ever heard. But that's not fair. I didn't do anything. All I did was, all I was just born here. I didn't do anything. Okay, well, hang on. Right? In one sense, you're right. It's not fair. But the fact is, what we do as human beings affects other people. I don't care whether you like it or not. Okay? What we do as human beings affects other people. And when you do something wrong, other people get hurt. I remember one of my friends, a priest in a past parish, he had a brand new bicycle. He had his new mountain bike. It was like $1,200 bike. Really magnificent. Okay? This thing could ride up and down Mount Everest. Um, and back then we had this uh, we had this real cozy relationship in the in the rectory. We left the doors open. We left the garage door open. Yeah, we were coming. We were going. We didn't feel like locking doors or closing doors or anything like that. So guess what happened to his bike in the garage? Got stolen. And to add insult to injury, whoever stole his magnificent new bike put in its place a cheap used bike. <laughs> So I come back out and in the garage I'm like, hey, what's this new bridge? What's this Bridgestone bike? He's like, Bridgestone? Bridgestone? He comes out and he realizes someone stole my bike and replaced it with, you know, like this cheap used thing that they, they got on eBay for twelve fifty. So anyway, after that we have to close the doors and lock the doors and well why is that? Because one person's sin affects us all, whether we like it or not. Okay, here's what Paul talks about here in chapter five. He says, that works in two ways. Jesus is the new Adam. Adam brought us all down, but I got good news for you, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus brought us all up. You don't have to die on a cross. Somebody did that for you. You don't have to take on all the suffering of the world. Somebody did that for you. Is that fair? No. But isn't it great? That one works two ways. Okay. Quick little, uh, quick little uh, interlude here. Chapter five, um, verse uh, eighteen to twenty-one. As one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one man's act of righteousness leads to acquittal and life for all. As one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. By one man's obedience, many were made righteous. Law came in to increase the trespass. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as a sin reigned through death, grace also might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Who was worse? I mean, who, who, who had a bigger splash? Adam or Christ? Christ. Adam was the sin. Christ was the grace. What's what? What? Where's the bigger reality in the balance of what God is doing? Sin or grace? Grace. And that's one of the most consoling lines in the whole Bible. Where sin abounds, grace all the more abounds. So don't ever lose hope. Okay. Don't ever lose hope when, when it th- seems like things are bleak. That's what Paul's trying to talk about there. Okay? And believing in it and acting on it, that's justification. Okay, what are its effects in us? Well, Paul says there's three effects. He's, Paul says there's three effects in us. He says uh, there's freedom from sin, there's freedom from the law, and there's new life in the Holy Spirit. Let's take a look at each one of those. Okay? First effect of justification. Freedom from sin. Freedom from sin. How much sense does that make? Freedom from sin. Think we're all free from sin? No. 
No. I knew a, a, a rabbi once, um, and uh, he was talking with a priest. Again, I might have said this in a homily. If I have, forgive me. If I say it in the future, pretend like you haven't heard it before. Okay? So the rabbi is talking to the priest, and, and uh, the, the priest says to him, Hey, rabbi, you, you, well, you know, come on, now why aren't you a Christian? Now Jesus, he came and he fulfilled all the law. Why, you know, rabbi, why aren't you a Christian? Rabbi goes over to uh, the window, okay? And he says, the Old Testament, the, 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 the scriptures say that when the Messiah comes, everything's going to change. The lion's going to lie down with the lamb, and the, the baby's going to play in the, in the cobra's den, and the parents are getting along with their children. When the Messiah comes, everything's going to change. And he lifts up the window, and he looks out into the streets. It was in the city of Boston. He says, what changed? That's why I'm not a Christian. Hmm. But there's a little bit more to it than that. What changes, changes one heart at a time. This is where freedom from sin takes root. Maybe not in society as a great big generality, right? Great big blanket, but in one heart at a time. Okay? And the fact is that grace takes its root in you when you act on it. And it really, really does turn your life around. It really, really does. That's very much like what we teach in moral theology here in the church. A little, brief little teaching here. We say that free choice is self-determinative. In other words, you are what you do. You are what you choose. You've heard it said you are what you eat? No. Okay? You are what you choose, morally speaking. Okay, so, if you choose to tell a lie, and you choose to tell another lie, and you choose to tell another lie, you'll discover those lies get easier and easier and easier until it comes to the time when you're telling lies spontaneously without any second thought, and we have to call you what you've chosen to become, a liar. Or you can choose to steal. And I've you know, known some people and different situations, you know, visited the prison, that kind of thing, and they steal, and they steal, and they steal, and it gets so easy, the next thing they do, they steal without even thinking about it. It's just a habit. They have to call you what you've chosen to become, a thief. That's moral theology. But you know what? It works in reverse. If you act on grace, it gets easier. It gets easier. It gets easier. God builds you up. You could say that virtues are the residue of previous good actions and the disposition to repeat them. And vices are the residue of previous bad actions and the disposition to repeat them. And every one of us here in this room right now, we could do a little moral calculation. If it were possible you know, to see as God sees, we could just kind of hit the equals button and add up the sum of all the choices that we made, good and bad, and you'd get your moral character down there at the bottom. Your virtues and your vices. The residue of past good actions and the disposition to do them again. The residue of past bad actions and the disposition to do them again. So what Paul's talking about here is something that we all know, and that uh, sin has made us weak, all right? And we do things that we uh, do things that we hate. I read here from chapter seven, verses eighteen to uh, to to, uh, to twenty-five, right? I know that nothing good dwells within me. Tell me if this doesn't sound familiar. That is in my flesh. I can will what's right, but I don't do it. I don't do the good that I want. I do the evil I don't want. Now, if I do what I don't want, it's no longer I that do it, but sin dwelling in me. 
So I find a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see that my members have another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, so Paul's talking about this, this, this very thing, but the, 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 the justification, it actually does free you from sin when you act on it in faith, one little process at a time. So what you find is justification cleans you from the inside out. It's sanctification. Do you guys know um, about uh, the, the Italian Renaissance painter Caravaggio? Who's heard of Caravaggio? Okay, uh, who's, who's, who's heard of Rembrandt? Everybody's heard of Rembrandt. Rembrandt was a Protestant, Caravaggio was a Catholic. And if you look at their, maybe you can go home, you can Google Caravaggio, right? Look at, look at Caravaggio's paintings. And then Google Rembrandt, look at Rembrandt's paintings. You'll find something fascinating. Their theology is reflected in their art. Caravaggio, the light of the person, emanates from within them. He's the Catholic. Rembrandt, his light reflects coming from outside of him. He's a Protestant. What we're saying here is something very opposite of what Luther said. Luther said that God covers up all of your faults with a blanket. Blanket of grace. The faults, they're all still there. Luther even used the image of snow covering a pile of dung. Not very pretty. We say, no, this actually transforms you from the inside out. That's what justification is. That's freedom from sin. It does take its root in you. Okay? All right, second part, freedom from the law. Always really talking to the Jews here. It's like, hey, Jews, you guys, let me introduce you to bacon cheeseburgers. All right? You're going to love them. You're not bound by the law anymore. So I don't want to talk too much about that. He really is telling the Jews here that they're, not, that they, uh, that they're, they're free, from the, free from the law. And the third, the third thing that justification does to us, he says it gives you a new life in the Holy Spirit. Let's think about that for a second, okay? New life in the Holy Spirit. Let me read to you one of my favorite little passages. Uh, chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. He says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are nothing compared to the glory that's about to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation was made subject to futility. Not of its own will, but by the will of him who once subjected it, and not without hope. Because creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole created world has been groaning in travail even until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is the hope in which we're saved. Okay? That's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about something new, new life in the Holy Spirit. And, and we want to focus for a moment on this idea. Creation was made subject to futility. Creation was made subject to futility. Think about that for a second. Paul's talking about new life in the Holy Spirit. Here's the old life. The old life before the Holy Spirit is you're looking for your fulfillment in this broken world. You're looking for your fulfillment in this broken world. Does it ever work? Has it, does it ever work? No. One of my favorite little theological songs was written by that great theologian Mick Jagger. I can't get no satisfaction. 
even the Rolling Stones know, you can't find happiness here on earth. Right? All right? Creation was made subject to futility. Hey, God stacked the deck of your heart in His favor. He did that on purpose. He doesn't want you to think that you can find your fulfillment out there because it doesn't exist. Right? But not without hope. There is new life. And what you come to discover is that as you grow in grace, this new life, it begins to take over. And the things of the world, they become less and less attractive to you. Less and less enticing to you. Less and less uh, uh, glittery and, and, and attractive. One of my favorite little quotations comes from John Vianney. He says, Those who have a taste for the bread of this world have little taste for the bread of angels. Okay? And it's interesting that as you grow now in grace, as you grow in grace, a brand new life takes over. You start to rejoice in the things of God and you don't really care so much about the things of the world. I don't even, I don't even go to movies anymore. I don't even know what's out. You know, it's, it's, it, never have, I never made a decision I'm not going to do this anymore. It just kind of slowly, you know, little by little, different parts of you, it just kind of uh, loses its glitter. And a brand new life actually takes over. Who's heard of the poem, The Hound of Heaven? Who's never heard of the poem, The Hound of Heaven? Very good. Thank you for raising your hands. All right. Can I just share this with you? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's my favorite poem. All right. It's by a, a British author. His name is Francis Thompson. And he describes this reality that I'm trying to describe to you right here. This reality uh, of a new life in the Holy Spirit that takes over the old life. And he calls God the Hound of Heaven. And the hound of heaven chases after the author his whole life long. No matter where he goes, no matter what he does, this hound of heaven chases after him. And he confesses, let me just read you a little stanza from here, because it really captures Paul's spirit here so well. He says, I fled him, I, the author, fled him, God, who I'm calling the hound of heaven. I fled him, ran away from him, down the nights and down the days. I fled him, down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him. And under running laughter up vistaed hopes, I sped and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after, with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat And a voice beat, more instant than the feet. All things betray thee, who betrays me. All things betray thee, who betrays me. Nothing contents thee, who contents not me. All things flee thee, who flees me. That's the hound of heaven. It's like this little voice in your conscience. God saying, if you're running away from me, you'll never find happiness. It's not going to be found out there. And the great... We'll just tie up this idea. At the very end of the poem... Uh, the author dies. And he goes to heaven. And the hound of heaven is there. And he, and he says, all those things that I took from you in life, all those things that I took away from you, he says, all that I took from thee, I did but take not for your harm, but that you might find it again in my arms. All which my child's mistake fancies is lost, I have stored up for you at home. Arise, clasp my hand and come. Isn't that encouraging? But before he dies, listen to that. Pardon me for going off on this poem. I just love this. He, he, he really nails the poor author for, for, for running away from God for so long. 
I just love this line. Human love needs human meriting. And how hast thou merited of all earth's clotted clay, thou the dingiest clot? (laughs) Alas, you know how little worthy of love you are. And who will love ignoble thee, save me, save only me? I just love that poem. So Paul says you get this brand new life, okay? And, and, uh, and, and this brand new life, it takes root in your heart. Okay? So what we're going to do now, we're going to take up the last two little sections. Okay? Uh, a defense of the Jews, part two. All right? A defense of the Jews, God's faithfulness to Israel. So the question we've got to ask here is, uh, you know, have the Gentiles basically won? Have the Gentiles basically won? Uh, you know, um, uh, has, has God jettisoned the Jews? You know, they're the chosen people. Has he rejected Israel? now that we don't have to follow the law anymore. And Paul comes out with a resounding no. You ever heard Paul called anti-Semitic? You ever heard Paul called anti-Semitic? Well, if you haven't, you will. You know, Paul was a Jew. Paul was a Pharisee. Paul was trained by Gamaliel. That's the Harvard of divinity teachers, you know, rabbinical teachers. Um, and Paul makes this little case right here. He says, look, God hasn't abandoned the Jewish people. Right? Right? And he says, look, the Jewish people, they had this understanding that their identity traces back to their descendancy. Their descendancy from Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And Jacob's was also known as Israel, right? And his twelve sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Naphtali, Issachar, Asher, Gad, Zebulun, Dad, Dan, Benjamin, Judah, and Joseph. And they're very insistent on the tracing of their ancestry. Did you know that? Okay. Um, they're very, very, and they always were in the, in, in, in the New Testament, very insistent on the tracing of their ancestry. And they'd say, I'm a Jew because I'm descended from a Jew, who is descended from a Jew. Who is, you know how you become a Jew? You're born a Jew. Your mother is Jewish, right? Because, you know, you can guarantee that you come from a Jew if it's your mom who's Jewish, right? So if you've got a Jewish mother, you're Jewish. Now, Paul says here, um, let me ask you a question, Jewish people. Where's the real descendancy of Abraham? Is it by blood? Or is it something deeper than that? Is it something deeper than blood? Is it by blood or is it by faith? And of course he says, the real descendants of, of, of Israel, the real descendants of Israel, those are the ones who have the same faith that Abraham has. Quick little read here from chapter 9. I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, my race. They're the Israelites. To them belong the sonship, the glory, the covenant, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs. Of their race according to the flesh is the Christ, God over all, blessed forever. So, you know, Paul's saying, hey, you know, the last thing Paul's doing is casting off the Jews. He's saying it was fulfilled. Right? It was completely fulfilled. And it was fulfilled... In, in, in the faith of Abraham that we're still hanging on to today. Just because Abraham was justified by faith in God, we too are justified by faith in Christ. It's the exact same thing. And that's the true descendancy that he says. The true descendancy that makes you a child of Abraham and a child of Israel. Okay? Now, the last little section, the practical application, uh, you, can, you can read it yourself. I highly encourage you to read it yourself. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's just magnificent spiritual reading. Can I give you just a little taste of it here? Okay. This is just, you, you take this, you want to pray, you want to know what to say in prayer, you don't know what to pray about, take chapter 12 of Paul's letter to the Romans and just sit down and read this, all right? Let love be genuine. Hate what's evil. 
cling to what's good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I mean, you can take any one of those lines and just say, wow, I, I need to work on that. Never flag in zeal, a glow with the Spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in trial. Be constant in prayer. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil. But take thought for what is the noble in the sight of all. If possible, live peaceably with all. It's one of my favorite lines. If possible, live peacefully with all. We've got divine revelation here telling us it's not always possible. Right? Uh, don't avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I'll repay, says the Lord. Don't overcome evil with evil. Overcome evil with good. I mean, you take any one of those lines, you can really pray about it. So what you get here in the last section that is, is you get Paul giving a kind of a detailed commentary to all the things that he was saying before about justification. So there's Romans, okay? Uh, not a whole lot of background to it. A lot really about uh, grace and justification. Uh, grace gives us faith. We want to put that into action. We put that into action. It turns our lives around. The heart of Romans there is chapter 1 to 8. Right? The heart of Romans there really is chapter 1 to 8. That's really the block of it. Um, the, the defense of the Jews, God's faithfulness to Israel, it's not quite as important to us in our own time. Um, and then the practical application there at the end is full of magnificent uh, ideas. Uh, so there you have it. There's Romans in uh, 60 minutes or less. Okay, You're all experts now. Anybody have any questions? Okay, that means it was either crystal clear, it was perfectly obscure, or it means you really don't like raising your hands. So far, so good? Okay, we'll end with a little prayer then, shall we?